This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 24th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The Dodd-Frank financial reform bill is coming into clearer focus and the powers it has given to largely unaccountable political appointees is breathtaking. Representative Scott Garrett spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on Dodd-Frank held Monday. So if you know my record, and the fact that I'm here, I guess some of you do, I voted against Dodd-Frank because it had failed to address one of the most fundamental causes of the financial crisis, and one which we are now looking at last week in um, committee hearing. I appreciate Mark attending that for an all-day event, and which we'll be doing marking up later on. Um, But it continued, though, to allow for government intervention into the private sector, and continue with the institution of policies that are basically killing jobs. But there's another, uh, what do you want to say, more fundamental uh, reason why I oppose Dodd-Frank. And I think surprisingly, uh, uh, well, the the reason for that is is one of the main reasons actually why I went to Congress in the first place back in 02, um, which was, and why I later started the uh, Constitution Caucus, is because Dodd-Frank is fundamentally unconstitutional. And there is, as you probably know, a lawsuit that is right now challenging the constitutionality of Dodd-Frank, and it really, I guess with all the other scandals that are going on around town, has gotten surprisingly little attention um, by the media or by the folks downtown who pay attention to these things. And that's why I just want to talk about that a little bit today. When you talk about the uh, Constitution and the founding founding fathers, One of the philosophical foundations of our Constitution is what? It's the protection of individual rights, individual liberty, and to do so how? Through a limited government. And as a result, our Constitution establishes, as it does, a government that is supposed to be based upon restraint. And it does so how? It does so by enumerating a few specific defined powers, which which our Congress continuously violates. It does so by dividing the powers of responsibilities between the branches and establishing a so-called checks and balances. But... With Dodd-Frank, rather than establishing a regulatory regime that is consistent with these constitutional um, principles, Dodd-Frank is, I would say, the great exception to the Constitution. Dodd-Frank creates not one, but as you've discussed in previous panels, two agencies that are granted essentially unlimited power to define and regulate basically every conceivable financial uh, transaction in the country and it is accountable to no one. And I'll digress here. If you watched the hearing that we had two or three weeks ago, when you had some folks over from uh, CFPB um, asking them as far as their ability to be accountable to anybody, they said, no, we are not accountable to anyone. So the two agencies that we're talking about is that one, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the second one, of course, is EPSOC. Put them together, they are basically the judge, the jury, and unfortunately the executioner, if you will, of the economy uh, of this country. So let's take a minute then just to talk about the CFPB. As I said, we uh, just had some folks in there, and CFO, I guess, was, and that was the last question I put to him, are you accountable to anyone? I asked him the question repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. He basically dodged it, but his last breath was, no, we're not. Um, This agency really could not have gotten off the ground without what it did do, which was to violate the Constitution. I, of course, refer to the fact that the uh, unconstitutional appointment of its director, Richard Cordroy, during a recess appointment. 
And unfortunately, unfortunately, also unfortunately, last week, uh, Harry Reid in the Senate held over, despite a 200-year Senate tradition, uh, held hostage and by default wound up pulling the so-called nuclear option, if not directly, but you might say indirectly, enforcing, you might say, the minority party to approve the president's outstanding executive appointments, regardless of the concerns that the minority held. Now, some of us wished that the minority would have held them a little more firmly and, and, and stood up to that pressure, but that is not the case as far as the Senate. That's why you have the House, um, at least in these areas. So the president's actions on the illegitimate recess appointment of Mr. Cordray did what? It basically erased the advice and consent clause um, with, from the uh, appointments clause of the Constitution. And by doing this, it imperils the legislative checks and balance that the founders intended in the Constitution. And why did they put those in the Constitution? Because they were fearful of tyranny. Um, unless we are able to have a check and a balance on power down the street in the White House, they would have unlimited power in the White House. And that's what you see here with CPP. Now, we've had the appointment since then. So some people now step back and say, well, that is old, old news. Um, because it's not a commissioner type arrangement, he's able now to uh, basically ratify all of his appointments that he uh, made prior to him getting there. And so they say the issue of unconstitutional muster is of no significance anymore. But let me point this out. It's worse than that because if we look dig into uh, Dodd-Frank just to see what their mission is, it goes so far. CFP mission is to prevent practices, this is what it says, that is empowered to define as, quote, unfair, deceptive, or abusive. And it does that. It has that directive of law with the limitless grant of authority with absolutely no checks whatsoever on the CFPB. CFPB. And if you step back, and again, if you read some of the writings of our founding fathers, if you read some of the writings of uh, James Madison, and I think it's uh, 57, but I'm not much sure, uh, he says, when he called Congress, Congress's most complete and effectual weapon is, anybody know that? The power of the purse. But with the CFPB, by funding it as it does, not through Congress and not through the appropriation powers, it takes that away from that. And of course, it does it through the Federal Reserve. Furthermore, the CFP director is exempt from the executive branch. So he's one, on the one hand, he's exempt from us over the legislator, but he's also exempt from the executive and the president. How so? Um, because the director is appointed by the president for a five-year term. But after the five-year term is up, he can stay on how long? Basically, indefinitely, uh, if no successor is ever confirmed. And if you just see how this process went through, uh, if we're so lucky to have a Republican um, president next time around, if we're so lucky to have a uh, Republican Senate, I'm sure that the uh, Democrat minority will probably acquiesce, just like uh, the Republican minority acquiesced this time to allow the next confirmation to go through. I'm not holding my breath on that. But if that does not occur, then that means after five years and the Senate can't confirm a new director, we will have Richard Cordroy on indefinitely. How can he be removed? Well, the director can only be removed under strict, limited circumstances and not for policy reason, which basically means that if the next president decides that he is not conducting the policies as he would like to, doesn't matter, he can do it. Additionally, so then we have the legislative, now we have the executive, and just back down the street this way, the judicial. Judicial review is limited because of special deference is given to CFPB legal interpretations as well. So all three branches of government are basically removed from degree of oversight from the CFPB.
And finally, the CFPB is headed by a singular regulator who basically, and I was just reading through it again the other day, has essentially unlimited power. So he's not accountable legislative, not accountable executive, he's not accountable to the judicial. Now, I want to stress this point, it's not simply an academic point. We could probably go through a whole list of uh, how this violation of the uh, exercise of a constitutional um, authority of unrestrained has implications across the board. Let me just give one a practical one, and that is in the area of salaries. Of the almost 1,000 employees that they have, they have 958 employees as of a little bit ago, 577 of those employees over there, that's 60% of the entire staff, they make over $100,000. 20% of them make over a good salary of $150,000. 5% of them make a salary of over $200,000. Now, you might think, and a lot of people push back on this, well, there's a reason why there are such high salaries over at the CFPB. It's because of the talent that they need for all the important jobs that they're doing. Well, one thing you should do, it is summertime, is just to check in to see how much they're paying for interns over at the uh, CFPB. Uh, interns' annualized salaries are probably the same as uh, Cato, $40,000 a year. Um, for interns, so it's a great place. Unfortunately, $40,000 is more than a lot of members of Congress pay their full-time staff for the entire year. So we, we might be surprised by this, but we really shouldn't be surprised by this. If you consider the all the unconstitutionality of it, if you consider the immense power um, and the immense mandate that has been given to this, when you consider the fact that they know that no one is really watching, and even if anyone is watching, they know that there is no accountability, they know that there is no consequences. When we had the director from um, assistant director up, yeah, uh, assistant director, I guess, oh, up there at one point in time. We were asking about the salaries, just this one particular point. He had no idea what was going on within their own watch. I guess they basically feel justified in doing just about whatever they want to do. So this is what we can result from a lack of accountability, and this is really what should frighten all of us. But there's still more. Move away from the CFPB, move over to FSOC, which I think you discussed about. That's Title I of Dodd-Frank. That creates the Financial Services Stability Oversight Council. And what is that supposed to do? That's supposed to serve as a systemic regulator. Now, go back in time, about two, two and a half or three years, I guess, when Dodd-Frank was initially going through committee. How many people here, just like to know my audience, was tuning in to any of the committee hearings that we were having? Okay, good. Only, only one, one person in the room. Everybody else was out there doing, making, uh, making a living or do, having fun. So if you tuned in at that time, you may recall then, gentlemen, that the question came up repeatedly to the many panels who were there as proponents of Dodd-Frank who said we need a systemic uh, regulator for systemic risk. We asked them, and I asked them this question, I remember Geithner was there, can you define to us what a uh, systemic regulator is? And not one of them could do so. Um, now we have a law that basically says we have a systemic regulator, and it's the FSOC. And what is its charge to do? It's preventing too big to fail and preventing all future uh, bank uh, bailouts. And that therefore means we are never going to ever again have a crisis like we had back in 08 because of the passage of Dodd-Frank. With this mandate, the power of the FSOC, just like the CFPB, cannot be overstated. What do they have the authority to do? They have the, they have the uh, statute ability to promulgate its own rules and regulations, as well as authority to determine which non-bank financial institutions would be subject to seizure. And with all this power, the, uh, the chair, uh, by cabinet-level position, is chaired by someone who, that the president gets to appoint. What's the significance of that? That's the significance of that is the politicalization of this process. Additionally, FSOC is empowered with the ability to control the activities of any, note the word, any financial institution with simply a two-thirds vote of its membership. 
Now you hear all that, you consider all the immense power that this entity has, and you might sit there as strong constitutionalists and say, well, isn't that unconstitutional? Now, if you think that, you're not alone. Other people thought it was too. People who also thought it was potentially unconstitutional as well were the drafters of the bill itself, the proponents of the legislation. And how do we know that? We know that by digging deeper into the bill, we know that they specifically said that the courts are not authorized to review and rule on whether or not the FSOC has been correctly interpreted the provisions of Dodd-Frank. So basically, they've just pushed the courts out of being able to determine any of the constitutionality. Step back even further, and you say, look at all that Congress has tried to do over the years, over the 225 years of uh, our history. Who knew that it was that easy to simply to th push the Constitution aside? All you had to do was pass a bill like Dodd-Frank and say, Supreme Court or the courts, you just simply have no authority in this area, and we can get to do what we want to do without any oversight by any other branches. Move on from that to the issue of liquidation authority. We see that the problems with this entity do not end there. Under Title II of Dodd-Franks, it deals with something called orderly liquidation. Under this title, the government can decide, again, if a financial com authority, company, um, anyone in the country under this title, can decide if they are basically in danger of default, and if they were to default, whether that would be a uh, systemic risk to the overall economy. It goes back to the initial question that we had for the members of the uh, panels that we had when Dodd-Frank were coming through. What is the systemic risk? They couldn't define it now. Now they're going to be able to define it to such an extent that they can actually look at one financial institution and say that you are going to pose unilaterally you know, a systemic risk to the, uh, to the country, and therefore we have authority to rein you in or turn you, close you down. How do you go about doing that? Well, it's very simple, actually. If the Treasury Department's answer is yes to both of those questions, it can basically do what? Replace the entire 200-plus uh, year history of the bankruptcy code in this country and put it into receivership. Now, this type of power, of course, is unprecedented. It grants an immense, unlimited power, if you will, unquestioned power to a handful of, not politicians, mind you, but basically unelected bureaucrats, and it does what we've been accusing this administration has been doing for the last four or five years, and that is allowing them to pick winners and losers among the liquidated companies that they and the investors behind them as well. Now, once they do this, or once they pick you out and say that uh, you are going to be a systemic risk to the uh, economy if you default, a couple things happen. Um, an order is issued. Uh, that company then has a full 24 hours to convince a federal judge to say, stop it. 24 hours to be able to stop this entire process is a mind-boggling period of time, short period of time to do it. But that's all they have is 24 hours. If the company fails to meet that test, and I would say that is almost an impossible standard, then the government basically wins by default. And the government then can begin the process of liquidation, even if your company, and even if the company that you're invested in, continues to appeal the process. So they do it, 24 hours is over, they begin to liquidate, start selling things off. You're in court appealing it. Meanwhile, all the assets are being lost. Scott Garrett is a U.S. representative from New Jersey. You can listen to the full conference at our website, cato.org.